God, we do ask that you would open your word to us now. We have read it. May we now hear it preached. Give us hearts that understand, believe, and are transformed. Which is only possible in your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have seen the news story this week. It made me chuckle. A mom was talking with her daughter as they were walking out of the house in Wilmington. And her daughter, who is, I don't know, eight years old or so, looks at her mom and is like, Mom! Mom! Why are the wasps acting so weird? Because she's looking out in the driveway and there's this giant swarm of wasps. And they're turning and spinning and broiling and it's... And mom goes, oh, honey, those aren't wasps. Those are mosquitoes. Not kidding, actually. Uh, We forget about that. In fact, actually, we've kind of... Florence is hit. It's gorgeous outside. In Wilmington, places not many hours drive from here are kind of out of mind. We've forgotten about it. Florence is gone. We forget that some of the rivers didn't crest until the end of last week. Their flooding is actually increasing. And the mosquitoes. You see, the article is actually making the point that when floodwaters hit like that, all of the mosquito eggs that have been laid that may not hatch for the next year or two all get flooded and all hatch simultaneously. And there's one specific species of mosquito that lives in eastern North Carolina that doesn't hatch very often, but when it does, it's three times larger than the normal ones, and it looks like a wasp. It has its own shadow. And it's easy for us to say, well, the rain's over, the wind's over, Florence is gone, out of sight, out of mind. It was one big experience, and now everything is back to normal. And unfortunately, there's a temptation for us to do the same thing in Christianity. There's a temptation for us to want to say, well, I had that one experience... That one, that one moment, that one season of life, that one night, that one week, that one month, that one year, that one whatever. But now everything goes back to normal. And it's where a book like Proverbs is so helpful because a large part of the book of Proverbs is to say, for the Christian, there is a new normal. You can't go back to the old normal. You've encountered Christ. You've been regenerated. You've been transformed. There is a new normal. And to have any conversation about the new normal, you you have to have a conversation about the transformative moment. The book of Proverbs is a reflection of what Christ accomplishes in the life of a believer. And by that I mean this is a person who has come to an understanding that they themselves are not capable of being good enough to work their way into heaven. They may think they're better than their neighbor. They may be better than their neighbor. But they're not better than God. 
It's the story of a person who acknowledges that that God is greater than they are and God is a holy God who demands perfection. And this God is perfection himself and so when he demands perfection from people, it's not what we consider perfection. If you spend all weekend painting, you know, a room, painting part of your house, I suggest your definition of perfection gets a lot looser the longer the painting goes on. Our God instead is perfect. He demands complete and total perfection, no sin at all. And we unfortunately do not fit in that category, no matter how wonderful of humans we might be. And so the only way to path, the only pathway to heaven is not through our own abilities, but through Christ. Christ, who is God, second person in the Trinity, steps inside time and space, steps inside humanity itself, becomes fully human while continuing to be fully God, to live a perfect life where we cannot. It's the story of the New Testament, the four Gospels specifically, telling how Christ lived and never once sinned. He never once was the fool. He never once made that mistake. He never once lost his temper sinfully. He never once coveted or was discontented. And what happened? This God-man who never sinned was murdered on the cross. And in doing so, taking all of the sins of his people upon him so that he would pay for them. That he would cover them. That's called the gospel. It's Christianity 101. It is the foundation, is the building block of Christianity. The danger is, though, just like Florence, is that we get that and we stop there. And to say, no, <laughs> I, I mean, I have that. I, I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and that's cool and all, but now it's time to go back to normal. And brothers and sisters, if you know Christ, if you are his child, if you have been redeemed and you have the spirit of God in you, you can't do that. You get a new normal. As God directs us how to live and shows us the new and better path, which we are going to look at rapidly. (laughs) Normally I'm doing this about 22 minutes ago, just so you know. First thing, as we see in chapter 27, in terms of what the new normal looks like for the saints of God, is a a danger, a warning and awareness of that subtle, quiet, creeping bad attitude that can easily creep into the heart of the saints. We have a whole different list of ways that this is illustrated of that creeping bad attitude that can easily be cultivated in the lives of the saints due to that lingering corruption inside. It starts in verses 1 and 2 in illustration purposes of that person who boasts. Don't boast about tomorrow. You don't know what that day will bring. Don't boast about yourself. Instead, let someone else praise you. Let a stranger praise you before you praise yourself. You see, prior to knowing Christ, our our identity is wrongly rooted in our own merits. Prior to knowing Christ, we find our significance in what we do, in what we accomplish, 
We find our significance in how beautiful we are, how smart we are, how excellent at our job we are, how we make more money than you we are, or my car is nicer than your we are, or whatever it is. And while that may be normal for the unbeliever, for the Christian, that is not the new normal. It falls in the category of bad attitude, a person who's boasting in self as opposed to boasting in what Christ has done. Look at while I am weak, while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Let's boast in that. Let's boast in my inability, my inability to get things done in my own strength and gifting. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Oh, let's boast in Christ and not self. Or worse yet, verse 3, the fool who is the pest. The provocateur, the one who continually likes to pester and poke. A stone is heavy. No joke. If you have to be a bricklayer, my grandfather was. It's hard work. Carrying sand, heavier. Doesn't have the structure. It's like carrying a... Uh, A person who's unconscious, dead weight is murderous to carry. But while those are both heavy, the provoker is worse. Wow. That person who likes to just irritate and needle and pester. Four. gripping, disturbing portrait of jealousy. Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? I mean, that's, that's pretty intense right there. The person whose anger is completely out of control that just goes into a rage, that's bad, but that's nothing in comparison to the person who is jealous. Which is shocking. Because jealousy is one of the great American traits, isn't it? It's one of the ones we've rewarded more than anything else. We promote the idea of longing for your boss's job so you can figure out how to get your promotion. Figuring out how to get better than the Jones so that we can improve our condition. Figuring out how to better ourselves because we breed discontent with our lives. Fifteen and sixteen. Nagging. Recognize that by touching these verses, I run risk of running afoul of two-thirds of the congregation. I know preaching or nagging is probably one of the faster ways to get yourself in serious hot water, but the scriptures say it. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. When this building rains, you may not know, we don't have gutters. We do, however, have little uh, water blockers over the doors. And the one right next to my door runs just perfectly so that all the water that runs off of that half of the roof runs to that, comes off the edge, and drips directly on top of the light right there, which functions as a beautiful drum. And by that I mean it is the most aggravating sound in the entire world. Just like that aggravating 
constantly. A quarrelsome wife, a quarrelsome person, and an attempt to restrain her is like trying to restrain the wind. <laughs> You're not going to do that. Grass oil in your hand, pretty sure that doesn't work. It just runs through. And again, 20, it comes back to that discontent. The grave is never satisfied. It's constantly longing for more. And guess what? The eyes of mankind are as well. Constantly breeding discontent. Now, if you're an unbeliever in the room, I hate to describe, but this is describing you. I don't mean to be rude. This is what life apart from Christ looks like. And many in the room can confirm that by their own testimony to say they became Christians later in life and they would 100% say this describes them. But if we have God's spirit within us, we actually have presented a new way. Not to reward and cultivate discontent of this kind. Not to reward and cultivate jealousy or boasting. Not to reward and cultivate nagging or quarrelsome spirit. But instead to cultivate the holiness that God gives. And friends, when the scriptures talk about, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what it's talking about, that we actually have the real and genuine ability to have victory in godliness. Now, certainly perfection will not come this side of the grave, but we can truly make progress. What does that look like? Well, in the scriptures, it's got a handful of illustrations here, and then one application we're going to get to very rapidly. One way that we can cultivate godliness is really interesting, because, and I say this as the consummate southerner, Charlotte is the furthest north I've ever lived. All right, pay attention to that. <laughs> what do the scriptures value? Verses 5 through 7, better is open rebuke than hidden love. That kind of stings. I mean, some of us have been taught we never do conflict publicly, never do conflict openly. It's only done in the most passive-aggressive fashion ever. The more passive-aggressive, the more successful you're being. Go watch Gone with the Wind. You'll know what I mean. Instead, what does godliness look like? It looks like frank conversation with friends that we love. It looks like an open correction. It looks like verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It looks like a person who loves you so much that they'll get in your face and say, you're being a fool, it's time to change. Which, by the way, I'm doing right now. (laughs) Not going to tell you it's always comfortable. It's not comfortable for me. I'm sweating right now. But faithful are the wounds of a friend, a person who's invested in you, that loves you, that desires for you to do well, that's willing to cross the barrier of uncomfortability to actually say, you have to stop doing this. And coupled with that, godly encouragement Verse 9, oil and perfume make the heart glad. Oil functions very importantly in the Old Testament. It was uh, a cooking product like it is for us. Uh, but it was also used for a whole multitude of things, but prim- also primarily for uh, medicine. 
You think about a lot of what they had to do medicinally, they used oil and they used honey. Honey is your uh, natural antibiotic and it keeps your wounds clean. Uh, I don't know if you know that, honey doesn't rot because it's a natural antibiotic and oil is part of what they use. So when they talk about anointing with oil and having the elders pray for you, there's a large emphasis there on using proper medicine the best of your ability. Uh, oil and perfume are significant, they make the heart glad. And sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Someone that loves you and is invested in you and wants to see you do well that you can trust. Jeremiah prayed for us as we've been in the selling and purchasing of house process, which has been happening at warp speed. And it's been very difficult because I I do not enjoy being in situations where I know everyone I talk to is going to make money off of me. Because I know all of them act like my friend, but none of them are. You realize that's what the contrast here for the church is. Everyone that I talk to right now is my best friend because they want my money. But instead, oh, how much more valuable is a person in the church that I know loves me and cares for me and is invested in me and doesn't want my money. They just want me. That encouragement takes a slightly different way in verse 17. Iron sharpens iron. One man sharpens another. Uh, we use this all the time. I, taught this when, I was taught this when I was in elementary school. Is This is what good godly friendship looks like. This is how boys interact. And we uh, wonderfully ignorant of how the forgery process like blacksmithing works. When iron sharpens iron, there's always certain things that must be present. Friction and heat and occasionally sparks. You never sharpen iron with a... I mean, you don't take an iron file and just go, ah, this is fun and simple and easy. It's very rough and abrasive process. It creates friction. It creates heat. Sometimes even creates sparks. But in doing so, makes one man sharper. Women plies equally so. Again, instead of this bad attitude where uh, the privilege of cultivating good relationships in the church, we have the, the privilege of being considerate toward one another. I have to talk about one of these verses. You can't skip over it because it's so kind of amusing. Verse 14. Hopefully you giggled when you read it. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice early in the morning, it'll be treated like cursing. I love that. I love that. What, a, what an amusing thing. I had that roommate in college. I think probably everybody had that roommate in college. The one roommate, if you didn't, by the way, it was you, who got up early, (laughs) made tons of noise, a huge ruckus, and never understood why all of the rest of the people in the house woke up grumpy. (laughs) Instead, we have the privilege of being considerate to one another, looking out for the interests of one another, looking out for the desires and the pleasures and the benefits of one another, looking for others' interests first. In verse 10, the privilege of being faithful. Do not forsake your friend, your father's friend. Do not go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Oh, God's people are to be faithful. You see, what this is presenting is a contrast. The consequence of Christianity is a contrast. Whereas the world offers boasting, provoking, and jealousy and quarrels and dissent and discontent, the church is to be offering frank conversations 
encouragement, consideration, and faithfulness. So that when people walk through the doors of this place, they get something different. We talked about this just briefly in Sunday school. I was setting you up for now, sucker punch. As to how Paul treats the lost to say part of our evangelistic tactic is to use envy. To say, look, the lives that God is giving here, the the newness, the work that God is accomplishing in this place should be so great that we're able to say to others, please come on in, the water's fine. I live with a clean conscience. Come on in. I know this is the only place you can find it. Not this only church. I mean the church, capital C. You want to live with joy. You want to know how to process sorrow correctly. You want to feel forgiveness. It's in the church. Come on in. The water's fine. You want to know what it's like to live with a knowledge of God that is not fueled by terror. Come on in. The water's fine. To see that Christianity, true, robust, proper Christianity has consequences in life. And those are proper evangelistic opportunities. Now for those of you that were converted later in life or you regenerate or your story, you came to Christ later in life. Just remember what your life looked like before that. How miserable it was. How lonely. How scary the world was prior to that. And to remember, look, offer that hope to people. Look, this is where these good things reside. And then one very brief application, how it closes in the end. How do you get to this place? How is it that we get rid of these bad attitudes by the Spirit of God working in us? How is it that we cultivate these good relationships? Well, the reality of the matter is they don't just happen overnight. It's not like you just wake up one morning and you're like, hmm. I think of outgrown jealousy today. Ha, that's wonderful. I'll pack that away with the pants that don't fit anymore. I'll put that in the attic and eh, maybe I'll never get, use that box again. Maybe I'll just go to Goodwill. No, instead, it's something that has to be worked toward. It has to be tended. Verses 18 through 27, the way this chapter ends is uh, through the presentation of someone who works hard to accomplish these things. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit. You have to put the work in to get the fruit. You don't just walk and go, oh, look, life's so great, wonderful, easy. He who guards his master will be honored. It's the same thing in 25 through 27 that uh, all of these blessings come from the hard work that accompanies it. The lambs will provide your clothing. The goats will provide the price of the field. There will be plenty of milk for your whole household, maintenance for all of your folks. And you know why I can stand up here and tell you you should work hard at cultivating these things if you're God's child is because you have the Spirit of God. You have God Almighty residing within you, giving you His power so you don't have to be afraid to try. Because He will bring to completion that which He has begun. He will bless you in godliness. He will be faithful even when we fail. For he is a God that is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And if you ever doubted that, look at how he even sent Jesus. That we have him in the first place. May it be that we, as Christ ridged this portion of God's church, may it be that we never 
kind of reduce Christianity to only one moment in time and miss out on the good and godly gifts that he has given that we may share with one another and the friendships and relationships that may be cultivated. And oh, may it never be that we miss out on evangelism because when people walk through these doors, it feels just like the world. That it feels just like their neighborhood HOA or any other thing. May it be that when they come in here, they see Christ and Christ crucified and the consequences of his redemption. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Forgive us for our sins, O Lord. Transform us in your mercy, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.